it's your uh, first time coming to the inquirers class, so glad you're here. Um, uh, totally fine, as Craig said at the announcements, if you're at the 9 o'clock, to sort of drop in uh, any time. And I hope you'll stick around, too. We have a few more weeks. Uh, I think this is the 6th of 8 or 9. Um, and um, today we have Doug Webster talking to us. Before he gets started, why don't I say a prayer? I usually bring in a collect from our prayer book. And I thought today's actually kind of sort of speaks to uh, what I've asked Doug to come talk to us about. Uh, so let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, give unto us the increase of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain that which thou dost promise. Make us to love that which thou dost command. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, come on in, sit down. Well, we... Um, We've gone through Anglican history, the prayer book, uh, tradition. Uh, we've talked about sort of the modern uh, heresy of our day and age, which is moralistic therapeutic deism. In response to that, the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then I brought the bad news in of human nature. Uh, what's the problem with us? And then the answer of uh, the grace of God in Jesus Christ last time. And often the question is, okay, I've been saved by grace, so what? Uh, what, what does that mean now that uh, I live a life of faith? And to talk to us about that is Doug Webster. If you haven't gotten to know Doug yet, he is uh, on staff here uh, as our teaching pastor, but is also on faculty at Beeson Divinity School uh, here in town. So here's a man with a, a um, copious education on the topic. <laughs> and I'll hand off the, um, the recording device for you here. You have a handout for us. Thank you. Just one? Yeah. Do you need it? Thank you. Yep. Do you need it, Doug? No. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I'm oh, probably, yeah. I think I have. I think everybody now has one. Thanks. Oh, okay. You can share. Great. Thank you. Well, Matt, thank you for that introduction. It seems a little awesome to try to talk about the, the Christian life in one 40-minute session, um, of which I guess we kind of anticipate that a lot of you are at different places and different stages in understanding what it is to live for Christ. And um, I was thinking about just where to, how to dive into this huge topic, and I settled on the Sermon on the Mount, but I have a few kind of, I guess, introductory words at the outset. Matt, I really enjoyed the sermon. Um, a great sort of foundation for anything that we would say in here. Uh, a gospel of grace that saves us from ourselves and from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and inspires us to live in a radically different way in every aspect of our life. Uh, a verse that in the letter to the church at Colossae that has meant so much to me in my pastoral ministry and in teaching is from Colossians 1.28. And it's this I think it's Paul's sort of philosophy of ministry or theology of ministry. We proclaim him, 
admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ. And Paul goes on to say, to that end, I most strenuously labor. Um, And he uses blue-collar terms in order to describe uh, the passion of presenting the gospel. The teaching, the admonishing, with all wisdom to present people mature in Christ Jesus. To me, that summarizes something of the aspiration and the ambition and the goal of the, the Christian life. But then Paul, if he says that for himself, it's really interesting in the third chapter of Colossians, he sort of defines the Christian life. And he defines the Christian life this way. Therefore, as God's chosen and holy and dearly beloved people, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with goodness, with humility and gentleness, Bear with one another and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your life. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now, I found it's... I didn't think of that connection between Colossians 1.18.128 and Colossians 3 until this week in the process of teaching at Beeson. That the same philosophy of ministry, as it were, the theology of ministry, we proclaim it, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ, is related to his profile, his identity, of every single believer. Chosen, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. Let the peace of Christ rule in your life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And that underscores the fact that before God, there's really no difference between a pastor, clergy, and the every person believer of a body of Christ. We're all called to the same thing, to let the peace and word of Christ dwell in us richly and to teach and admonish one another. So Matt preaches, so we preach. And we, our prayers are no more effectual, I think, than your prayers. Your visit and your encouragement and your discussion with a seeker or with a new believer or with an old-time believer is just as valuable as anything that Matt would do, I would do, that Andrew would do, that anybody else kind of quote on staff would do. Uh, My roots are Baptist and Presbyterian and uh, came to Christ at a really young age and I, I remember in a Sunday school classroom praying to receive Christ into my heart at the age of five. And I have a visual remembrance of that room. And, you know, by the grace of God and because of parents who really did have the Christian life in integrity and in humility, I think, um, it was kind, it's been kind of a long obedience in the same direction. 
and I wouldn't be here at the Church of the Advent if Andrew hadn't called me up and asked to get together for coffee and said, we'd like somebody old on staff. <laughs> and um, it's really been a lot of, it's been really good for Virginia and I. We have found a, a household of faith here at the Advent. We had been working in a church in New York City, going back and forth on weekends for four years, and uh, this has just provided a place for, for worship and for fellowship and for hearing the word and uh, enjoying being used to some extent. And uh, that's how we have come to be here at the Advent. For me, there's very little difference between what I call low church Anglican and regular Presbyterian. Um, those seem very compatible. And, and if you're drawing another analogy, I don't see a real big difference between thoughtful Reformed Baptists and uh, Presbyterians and low church Anglicans. Um, for many years, probably John Stott's uh, church at All Souls in London was a model to me of what the church really could be, ought to be, be nice if it was, kind of place. And uh, I think that ties in with a lot of the aspiration here at, at the Advent. Um, so I wanted that Colossians to stick in your mind. Um, Colossians 3, the reason I have that down for, from memory is because it's my favorite wedding text. Uh, to me, it's, uh, it's just a great segue from the household of faith to a couple who's centered in Jesus Christ. Chosen, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, goodness, humility. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you. You know, I, I think coming into this fellowship, there would be, by the grace of God, a desire that parents let the word of Christ dwell in them richly and teach and admonish one another, that, that you be the primary pastor to children, your children, that you be the primary pastor to your aging parents, that you be a, a primary pastor to those in the workplace. Um, Matt's story in his sermon made me think of a story I read this past week of... Uh, you know, Matt's coming out in confession brought on by kind of the, the mockery of his friends and uh, feeling it was about time he better say something. Uh, I heard this story this week of a new believer who came to Christ and really was convicted that the people at his workplace needed to really know who Jesus Christ was. And he was praying about it looking for an opportunity, wondering when to speak. And he finally mustered up enough uh, courage and confidence, a co-worker that he had worked with for years. And he sits down and he starts talking to him about how he came to know Christ as his Savior. And the guy's listening intently. And then he says at the end of, uh, after he's given his testimony, his co-worker friend says to him, well, I've been a Christian for years. You see, his, the new believer had no idea that his co-worker had been a believer for years. Nothing particularly evident, nothing ever said, no encouragement about the gospel. Uh, and I just hope that's not true of us. Uh, not in a self-righteous, holier-than-now, 
we've got it, you don't mentality. But just how could people be around us for very long without beginning to understand that something's really important in our life? And that's Jesus Christ in the gospel. And it's revolutionary. Well, your handout here. Um, I was a little ambitious, I think. But that's par for the course for me. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is just, uh, and uh, we'll call this just introductory, okay? Um, so you can take whatever I've said here and take it home and think about it. I probably, our key text for the Gospel of Grace, one of them anyways, is the Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. We've got that down. I've listened to these inquiry class uh, times, and that has been emphasized. No therapeutic deism here. No uh, self-righteous, works-oriented life here. It's by grace. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're saved by faith, but saving faith is never alone. It inspires these works. We are God's workmanship. So my question below that, Ephesians 2, what's the relationship between works righteousness and the work of righteousness? I don't want us to cancel out the work of righteousness out of fear of works righteousness. One is, yes, to be criticized, to be eliminated, to be diminished. The idea that we can work or earn or merit our righteousness, our salvation. It's all a question of mercy, not merit. But then, because of what God in Christ has done for us, and because we become new creations in Christ Jesus, a life that's marked by Christ and the cross, And the old law now becoming the law of Christ because of grace inspires the work of righteousness. In the 39 Articles, which is kind of the benchmark standard for Anglicanism, I'm drawing attention here to two articles on the sheet. Article 11, Article 12. The first on the justification by faith. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith. And that not for our own works or what we deserve. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. And then right next to it, Article 12 on good works. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith, and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment. Yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, inasmuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit." 
So the good works will come. A life in Christ will become evident of the fruit of that relationship in the Lord. To me, a wonderful gospel text is this Matthew 11:28-30. Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, I'll give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Eugene Peterson's translation of that text in Matthew 11. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And I'll tell you, I'm 65, and I would say Jesus has been true to that promise. Come to me. I won't put anything heavy on you, something ill-fitting. I found over time, sometimes I will chafe under that which is really of my for my benefit, and sometimes I'm slow to learn, that really the yoke that Christ has for me to connect me to him and to be co-workers with him. Uh, I may resist, but I would say that usually by his grace, I come to see the wisdom of it, the beauty of it, the joy of it. And that's where I guess I would, and if I had plenty of time with you, (laughs) I'd turn you to the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is a beautiful expression of the Christian life. And it's not overly idealistic. It's practical. It's real. And the Sermon on the Mount is a 12-minute sermon. It fits into an Episcopalian liturgy really nicely. 12-minute sermon. And, uh, you know, having taught uh, in the Lay Academy several times the Sermon on the Mount, most, many Christians, I've been surprised to learn this, many Christians think that the Beatitudes is the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Because often that's the only thing that they've really heard preached as the Sermon on the Mount. But it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And there is a flow to this, and I've put the whole text of the Sermon on the Mount um, here. And if we could just go through the dark headings, so I can sort of map that out, and sometime uh, I'm hoping that Gil will ask me to do the Sermon on the Mount as a Sunday School series. But uh, this is a great place for me, for us, I think, to begin in describing the Christian life. Sermon on the Mount begins with uh, eight Beatitudes, eight blessings. Begins on the theme of happiness. How is happiness achieved? And Jesus explains it in ten sentences, eight beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Underscoring the meaning of the beatitudes, I think, is this. 
And the interpretation of each of these Beatitudes is rooted in the Old Testament. It's not rooted in your free associating with the words. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who who understand their utter, complete dependency upon my mercy. That's an Old Testament definition of poor in spirit. Blessed are those who acknowledge their need for me, God says. Not acknowledging their need for God's grace. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning, really understanding my sinful departure from the living God. You could put in understanding of, of Paul's text for, you know, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But each one of those Beatitudes is acknowledging the first four, our dependence upon God. The next four are acknowledging how we ought to relate to others. And you put those two together and the introduction for the Christian life is an acknowledgement that this is the state of grace. You never graduate from the Beatitudes. You never stop hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You never not counted as blessed to be persecuted for his name's sake. These are eight statements that you could only say you could only affirm from the standpoint of God's grace. And that becomes foundational for everything else that follows. That becomes foundational for being salt and light. Not as a kind of um, a, a nice seasoning for the world, but as an absolute necessary preservative and revelation. Salt and light is the next heading there. Um, it's not that you and I should be salt and light, or maybe we could be. Jesus says you are. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now, should I stop and ask for dialogue and questions? Have I said anything at this point that you'd like to comment on, question? Tell me I'm wrong. Beatitude-based belief. A grace-based life. Utter dependence upon God. Not separate, eight separate little categories, but a kind of eight-angled picture of what the Christian life is, consists of, is foundational too. Then with salt and light impact, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The next section in the Sermon on the Mount, I have it here in bold, heart righteousness, Matthew 5, 17 through 48. That's a long section in which Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard it said in verse, uh, verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar, there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there at the altar. First go and reconcile to them, then come and offer your gift. What I found striking after Jesus lays down the Beatitudes and talks about being salt and light, then he talks about what it really means to have an inside-out form of righteousness. Not an imposition of righteousness over us that we try to keep the standard, but a righteousness that, as he says here, exceeds the righteousness, surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious types. It's a righteousness that comes from within, and it's manifested in this way. Love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, reconciliation instead of retaliation. And what's common with all of that description of heart righteousness is that it's what the world sees. Now, wouldn't you expect him to begin a description of the Christian life by talking about spirituality, by worship life, by praying, giving, fasting? That's not where Jesus starts. Jesus starts with the social profile of the beatitude-based believer who has salt and light impact, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust. Fidelity instead of infidelity. Here's as how this is how my life interfaces with the world. And this really is the key to human flourishing. It's the way to live life. It's the way that the world itself, in its best mind, acknowledges this is a great way to live. You really are faithful in a loving relationship with your spouse. There's fidelity there. And the world on its best days says, yeah. That's pretty good. The world really does want honesty, even though right now it seems filled with duplicity and manipulation and all that sort of contrivance. But the world really wants the yes to be yes and the no to be no. They want to be able to trust your word. This is so commending for the gospel of grace that, that people do reconcile instead of retaliate that they pray for their enemies instead of trying to figure out how to revenge against their enemies. And this is what Jesus lays out. This is that heart righteousness picture. This is really very living evangelism, speaking volumes about the nature of the gospel by how we live, showing, rather than explaining the gospel, it's showing the gospel. Now, after that heart righteousness section, see really how we would need to spend a lot of time on this? Um, the next section on page two, chapter six of the sermon, hidden righteousness, giving, praying, fasting. Can I draw your attention? If you look back on page one, In chapter 5, in verse 16, notice what it says in verse 16. It's in the second column and about the middle of that column. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now compare that, if you would, to page 2 in chapter 6, verse 6. 
So we've heard Jesus say, let your light shine before others, that the world can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now when he turns to spirituality, to our giving, our praying, our fasting, notice what he says in verse 6 of chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. You see how those two contrast? Showing the world your good deeds so that your Father in heaven is glorified, but when it comes to the praying, the giving, the fasting, just do that for the sake of the Father. Do not do that for the sake of show. Do not do that as part of a religious performance. And that's why I call it the hidden righteousness. The praying, the giving, the fasting is done not for others to see, lest we be hypocrites, but so that our Heavenly Father sees. And Jesus assures us of the reward for that sort of secret spirituality, the praying, the giving, the fasting, done not for the effect that it may have on others, but done out of a reverence to a holy God who loves you, cares for you, and you are acknowledging. Moving on to page three and the prohibitions. Some of us may have grown up in a kind of do not culture. Um, don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, that type of thing. If you've come out of a very conservative background, uh, that's not what Jesus means by the do nots here. The prohibitions, the liberating do nots. And again, this section in the Sermon on the Mount to me is very freeing. Don't give your heart to material things. Don't worry about life. And Jesus then gives counsel as to how to deal with life. Do not judge others harshly. And do not force the gospel on others. Remember the section of casting pearls before swine. These are liberating do-nots. Don't worry. Don't give your heart to material things. Don't be judgmental of others. Don't impose the gospel on others. You don't have to have that kind of anxiety. These prohibitions are liberating. That leads us to the imperatives. Page three, the second column. Now, what is the believer supposed to do? What is Jesus' counsel for living the Christian life? They're very simple, very straightforward. You and I can make a mystery of discipleship and Church history has done a pretty good job oftentimes of doing that, but it's not. It's very simple, very straightforward. And I don't think it gets more complex in time. Now, it may get more costly depending on where we are in life, what our vocational roles are in life, the family dynamics of life. I'm not saying it's simplistic, but I'm saying it's not a mystery. It's pretty clear. And he lays that out in chapter 7, 7 through 27, the imperatives, the believer's to-do list. Ask, enter, pay attention, obey, build on the rock. And all of that involves a certain type of uh, decisiveness, I think, on our part, a choice. Uh, on the top of page 4, enter through the narrow gate. <laughs> Do you know what the narrow gate is at the Advent? Most of us are staring at it during the whole service. You've got the pulpit, 
and then you got this narrow door. The most all of us have come through one way and the and the other way, and I I find that amazing. I just I I marvel at it every week that the whole church just about funnels through this narrow door that really nobody can walk next to me and get through that door because of my size. So it's like one person through the door. And that to me is an icon. (laughs) It's an icon of what Jesus says here in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Every time you go through those doors, to the right of the pulpit, you could be thinking of this text. I'm entering into the narrow way, the peculiar way, the, the wonderful way. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that God has purchased, that he's brought out of, light, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those people are walking through that narrow door. Every time we walk through that narrow door, it can be something of a commitment to the body of Christ, to understanding what the grace of Christ is all about. Have you thought of that before as you've walked through those doors? The word proclaimed, the narrow door, probably speaks to me even more than the stained glass windows, which are beautiful and powerful. But that narrow door underscores something of the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder just what it would have been like to hear him as a preacher. I teach preaching at Beeson Divinity School, one of the things I do. And um, uh, he really ends this sermon without an ending. Just listen to these last few verses, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. It did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Done. End of sermon. Kind of abrupt. He doesn't ease you out the door. He confronts you at the end. And, you know, that kind of conclusion to a sermon just sort of where it just sort of stops and it crashes. I mean, can you imagine Jesus at the door and you walking through and say, nice sermon? Kind of doesn't work with this. Um, It forces a response from us. And I think, I mean, to me, daily the Christian life is something of that response by God's grace. Sermon on the is really a great place, I think, to capture something of the scope of the Christian life. Jesus' 12-minute sermon, designed to give us something of the range, beatitude-based believers with salt and light impact, having genuine inside-out heart righteousness, understanding what hidden righteousness and what real spirituality is meant for, 
to draw us into a deeper intimacy with God. Then life's prohibitions, don't worry, don't give yourself to material things, don't be judgmental, don't impose the gospel. And then these liberating do's, pray, enter. And it's just a beautiful picture, I think, of, of the Christian life. Um, Matt suggested that we suggest a book. And John Stott's Basic Christianity, uh, it's not too basic for me, so I would suggest a reread of John Stott's Basic Christianity if you've never uh, read this little book. To me, it's, it's a wonderful kind of reminder, too, of, of how to basically express the gospel. Um, so it may not be at a place of challenging you intellectually or theologically, but I think it's just a good synopsis of the Christian life, this basic Christianity. And then I don't know if I've got enough for everybody, but um, I mentioned icons. And, you know, we sang at the last hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, perfect submission. Um, I think a key to the Christian life is the discipline of surrender, is what that hymn celebrates in submission. And it's a book I did several years ago on biblical icons, like the lamb, the thorn in the flesh, the shepherd's staff, the unadorned altar. Um, the catalyst for this book was a friend of mine who converted to Greek Orthodoxy, and he couldn't understand why I didn't join him in that. Um, but it, uh, it made me wonder, what are the icons that are in Scripture? The kind of objects that are there, like the easy yoke, that is pulled in as kind of an illustration and infused then with meaning because of the revelation of God. So if you're interested in, in reading that, I've got a free book for you. Um, we may not have enough for everybody, but um, I'll get more if you want it. So, questions, comments? Well, it's time to go. Yes? Uh, well, I don't know if you have time for this. I was just thinking about, like, as you're talking about like a life of faith, I, was, I would be interested to hear your perspective on, like, sort of, ways that as believers and as churches we can kind of get off of that um, like last week Matt was just talking about um, God's grace is like one way love that transforms us and like brings us into this life through just love itself but I feel like there are all kinds of ways that we turn that like you're saying it either works righteousness or maybe a righteousness that doesn't it, it just kind of stays inside and doesn't get outside like those two kind of, I don't know, so just maybe things you've seen over your life and ministry to watch out for, I don't know, that might be kind of a vague question. Uh, um, I think it's a really good question. My hesitancy here is not because it's not a good question, but just what all can I say? Um, uh, if I were to summarize your question, is it how do I turn this life of faith into action, to experience? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe just like keeping that sort of what you tried to sketch out without turning it into works righteousness, but then also not losing, not having like a grace-based righteousness that maybe is like kind of a cheap grace. Well, I think we're always kind of, um, we're in tension over uh, either neglecting what really Christ would have us to do for fulfillment, for joy, and falling back into patterns that are really sub-Christian, or 
making ourselves sort of perform up to our expectation rather than allowing the grace and the rest that God has desired for us in, in his rhythms of grace. Um, and to sit loose, as it were, um, receptive, but not overly stressed as to what this Christian life is going to look like. Um, yeah, I don't know how to parse that tension out between a kind of antinomian, lawlessness, do as I please, everyone did right, what was right in their own eyes, and this kind of uh, you know, cheap grace that, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, I think it is a tension. Bells are tolling. I'll have you say a, a prayer for us, Doug. But um, thanks so much. We have to say to him. Okay. Um, come back next week. I think the session is the sufficiency of Scripture. Mark Gillespie come in. I feel like in terms of the Bible, the question most people have nowadays is, how can or why should I trust it uh, as a document of authority? So if I ask Mark to come in and talk to us about that, Mark's a, a Bible scholar. Um, and uh, thanks so much, Doug. He's given us a, a book recommendation. You can take uh, copies of his book as well. I think we might sell basic uh, Christianity in the bookstore. If not, we should. Um, and by the way, I just want to point out Fontaine Pope's here. Um, she's subbing in for Sandy today to be our host. Fontaine's our small group director. If you, uh, in your walk with Christ, are not in a small group, it's a great thing to think about. It's a great way to tap into the life of the Advent as well. Um, you can talk to Fontaine about it. She's right here. Doug, you want to say a prayer for us? As yeah, let, let's receive the Lord's benediction. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy. And as we put our hope in him, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thanks, sir.